0: Church, my name is John Hayes, and it is a privilege to get to serve as your kids' pastor. Would you remain standing and grant me the privilege to read our text this morning? I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, If you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you knew what was set before you and yet you humbly went to the cross knowing what lay ahead yet choosing to love us to lay down your life for us. Lord, we pray that you would show us how to love one another. or to love you with everything that we have order to love our neighbor as ourselves. Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Lord, give wisdom to our elders. We pray that you would give them energy. Thank you for their love and the way they shepherd us. God, we pray for our leaders. We pray that you would give them wisdom. Father, we pray that you would bring healing to those who are sick. Father, we pray that you would use us, that we would be known as your people by the way that we love one another. Lord, thank you that you are faithful and steady and sure, and our hope is secure in you. Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen.
1: You go first. You go first. You ever heard that saying as a kid growing up? You go first. Usually accompanied something along the lines of jumping into a cold pool. You go first for adults. Perhaps it comes to mind the reality of reconciling a hurt relationship. The courage that it takes to go first is often associated with facing a very real fear. Our passage this morning that John read for us is filled with information of what Jesus first knew and what Jesus first did. We, by default, as believers, are those who are the recipients of God's saving love We're recipients of what the Lord has worked on our behalf, and we're marked by that love in a transformative way for the rest of our life. And as we're to walk out as recipients of the love of God, our lives are being transformed, and this itself is to be a signpost to all people and all places where we go, intentionally and along the way, proclaiming the good news of hope found in the Son of God, sent from above. Jesus, the Christ, the promised one. Jesus didn't come, I've wondered this before when I was younger, why if Jesus was holy and sinless, and born without sin nature as we are, why didn't the Lord just send him right to the cross? Why did he have to come to Mary's womb and to to? to Experience all the tragedy and trials and teaching and unbelief that he faces for the duration of his life until he would lay it down on the cross? And the answer is that Jesus alone could fulfill all righteousness. Jesus alone could walk the road that in our text this morning we see, even though he has disciples with them, he walks it alone. And so we ask God, would you teach us? Would you give us a humble spirit? Teach us, Lord. Help us to take heart this morning as we note from verses 18-30 through that Jesus is aware of and able to handle the schemes of Satan. Jesus is aware of and uniquely able to handle all the schemes of Satan even though the best of men often remains clueless. There's a cluelessness that accompanies the disciples again and again and again and it leads us to note what Jesus uniquely knows. Jesus knows His own. Jesus knows His own. Well, as believers, why should that help us to take heart? Why should that encourage you as a teenager that Jesus knows His own? Why should that encourage you as a senior adult that Jesus knows His own? Why should that encourage you if 2020 has been one of the hardest years of your life? Why should it encourage you that Jesus knows His own? Well, Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9. You're your Bible has a footmark on that as he quotes it. Now psalm 41 is a psalm of David. David knew betrayal. David knew what it was to be betrayed. David wasn't absent of betraying others, but he writes Psalm 41 in the shadow of knowing betrayal. Betrayal. David was willing to die for King Saul. And King Saul would seek to murder him, literally. Literally. That's betrayal. As time would go by and David would ascend to the throne, his own son, Absalom, would covet his throne and seek to murder David, his father. That's betrayal. The ultimate highlights of what betrayal is, David knew it. And what Jesus does with this text, did you see this? What Jesus does with this text is he says, this ultimately is fulfilled in my betrayal. Jesus chose Judas, and He knows that, and he knew that Judas was not truly one of His own. But Jesus experiences the pain of betrayal. So though David lived a thousand years before the Son would take on flesh, Jesus, Jesus is the prophesied Son of David. Jesus would know betrayal in an even greater way than David. and It allows Him at this scene to say, I'm not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen. So why did Jesus knowingly endure such betrayal? The one who knows His own, He tells us in the text. Why? That they may believe. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place. Why? That when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. This is the Gospel of John. We've entitled this series through John. That will finish at the end of October. So loved. So loved so loved you and i have been so loved that we while we were yet sinners christ would die for us it is the love of god that is to transform our lives and impact how we handle every single conflict every single hint of betrayal every component of hurt is to be marked as we handle it as those who have been so loved by the lord But we see that the Lord does what He does so that His people may be moved to belief. So that we may be moved to belief. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ sent from above? That the suffering that He endured was purposeful? That He would choose Judas knowing that Judas does not believe? That He would choose Judas and experience betrayal so that you may believe. That's the message of the Gospel. Do you believe the good news? And as those who believe the good news, we are to be marked by the love of God. What comforts creation is an intimate relationship with the one true God. As we've adopted Jenny's preschool song, this language, the one true God. We're to be transformed by this reality that we know the one who knows us perfectly. And let's be honest, we don't know all things. We don't know a lot of things. But the believer is comforted because they know the one who does know them perfectly. This is where our confidence comes from, our hope comes from as believers, that we are known by Jesus. He knows us. Sarah and I have been watching this show uh, called Alone. We've been watching it together, but it's called Alone. And it's this unique show, and it it's, has 10 contestants, 10 survival experts, and they get put in the middle of nowhere, and they try to survive alone. It's just them, they do their own camera footage, and the winner, the last person in, they receive $500,000. And it's filled, of course, with monologues, because it's just them on their own with a camera. And in one of the monologues in season five, we really like this show, okay. One of the contestants is sitting there. He's been there for over a month. And he's on his own and he's very contemplative. In a moment of total honesty, he makes a statement akin to this. It's strange being somewhere where I don't need to pretend as though I have answers to all the questions. Or have people look up to me and pose to know the answer. I'm able to just be and be honest that I don't really know what could happen at any time. And part of that is freeing. But listen, having people actually rely upon me is also perhaps better and stabilizing. He's having this moment of honesty that even though I'm a father and a husband and a business owner, I have to pretend like I know what's going on at all times and I don't know what's happening a lot of times. And it's kind of freeing, but it's kind of terrifying let me be honest with you, as a pastor, let's just be direct. This mask, no mask thing has been putting me in circles. All the context of 2020 has put us in a situation of trying to research and trying to make decisions, and you're constantly in this, I know, but I don't know. But we have to move forward. Please don't hate me, right? That's the kind of feeling, but this is what we're doing. And our elders have been—we've been in this position. How do we lead well through this? And knowing, but at the same time, I I'm not really sure how this handles out. Well, how does this fit in, believer? You are known by Jesus, and there may—there will be days that come into your life when your feelings tell you, "Do I even really know what's going on right now?" When your emotions are telling you things that your brain is thinking, "I shouldn't even be thinking this or feeling this." But in the reality, we are steadied in the reality that our Savior knows us. Our Savior knows us with a perfect knowledge. And He has made Himself known in His Word. And so be rooted in the Word of God and celebrate that He knows you. He knows you. It's not a fake it till you make it kind of faith. It's a trust that Jesus really knows you and He really loves you and he really worked to work on the cross to save you and you are his if that can't give you encouragement i don't know what can because it leads us to this second reality in verses 21 through 30 that jesus though in control look at this he is still moved by judas's betrayal Je- jesus is in control but he's still moved Knowing that Judas was going to betray Him the whole time, He's still moved by the fact that it happens. He's fully God and fully man. Verses 21-30, through 30, Jesus is troubled. He's distressed in His spirit because at least in part, the pain of betrayal. And betrayal is universal language. Young or old, regardless of your language or your culture, betrayal is a universal language. Few things hurt more than betrayal. And this first century Jewish culture is no different. Jesus has already communicated in languages of servant to, to master, teacher to student. And Jesus is betrayed by the one He has demonstrated manifold hospitality to. Pouring into Him and teaching Him. It's absolutely incredible. And the disciples are not dense. The disciples aren't just, they don't get anything. That's not the disciple. We would be the same way if we were in the room. So what does this tell us a few things? The disciples, all this betrayal is taking place and the disciples still don't get it. Well, first it has to tell us that this means Jesus who has all knowledge, He knows Judas is going to betray Him. Back in verse 2, He already set His mind on betrayal. And now in verse 27, Satan has entered into Judas to go ahead and do the deed Judas has desired to do, which is the betrayal of the Son of Man. And Jesus' disciples totally don't get it. As a matter of fact, they're so deceived, they're so fooled, Judas is so good at playing this game of deception, of pulling the right levers at all the right times, that they presume that, When Jesus tells him, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. They're thinking, well, Judas is probably, because he's a great guy, he's probably going to go increase the benevolence fund and go give some money to the poor. Or he's a good servant, so he's going to go buy the food because he's the treasurer, and he's going to go prepare more food so this feast can keep on going. How were they so deceived? What's it show us? At least, at the very least, it shows us that Jesus never treated Judas differently even though he had perfect knowledge that Judas was going to sell him out. Think about that. If you knew with 100% certainty that your neighbor within the next three years was going to betray you in an unbelievably costly way, would you treat them differently today? I'll be honest with you. If I knew you were going to take the last piece of pumpkin pie this Thanksgiving, I would probably treat you differently. Jesus knows Judas is the betrayer and He treats him in such a way that the disciples are clueless. That's the love of Jesus. That's the love of Jesus. And what this ought to do do to us as, as believers, as men and women, and as boys and girls, it ought to fill us with humility. This scene ought to give us unbelievable humility because apart from Jesus teaching us apart from the grace of God upon our lives we will not understand that regularly in our lives ought to be marked the very simple prayer teach us Lord as we come to the word of God teach me Lord as we're in a situation we think we know what to do teach us Lord and if you want to pray it in Greek because it sounds way more cool it's just didache hamas teach us Lord Teach us, Lord. Teach us. For if you don't teach us, we will not understand. How many times do I come to a text or we come to something we think, I've I've heard this before, I know how this works, and our hearts are closed off to the the Word of God, the Spirit, and what He has for us and to show us? Humility is to mark the believer and it ought to give us comfort that Jesus though in control, is still moved by Judas' betrayal. Judas was the master of human games. He knew all of these things. So to whom is Jesus speaking when he says, what you're going to do, go do it quickly? This sounds a lot like Job, doesn't it? Think about it for a moment. In the story of Job, Satan roams the earth and he finds one who's righteous and obedient to the Lord. And Satan can't just go and tempt him and do to Job what he looks. What does he have to do? He has to go to God and get permission first. Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. Believe it, believer, that he desires to ruin your marriage. Young student, he longs to shipwreck your faith, to break it apart to question everything in the Word of God, to to stand apart from the Word of God. That's his longing. And he comes to Job and says, he only believes because you're so good to him. Let me get to him. And in a similar way, Satan has come in to Judas. His plan is to bring about total betrayal. But he can't do it unless Jesus gives him permission. In the same way that God gives boundaries and permits Satan to work in the life of Job, so too, even though Satan thinks he's crafty and clever, and he's craftier and clever than any of the disciples. Think about it. The disciples are the wisest of men in the best seats in the house, and they have no idea that they're looking at Satan enacting his plan. They think he's good, going to go do a good thing, serve the poor. But Jesus knows the schemes of Satan. Satan thinks he's laid the trap. And Jesus knowingly and willingly steps in it and says, pull it. What you're going to do, do it quickly. And in God's greatness, the very plan that Satan thinks will lead to Jesus' fall will actually lead to Satan's destruction. That's how great our God is. He is his spirit is troubled by the reality of betrayal. Betrayal. And if you have been betrayed in a deep and personal way, you have a Savior who can empathize. Jesus knew a greater trial even than that of Job. And just like Job at the end of Job would be asked by God to pray for his friends, to intercede for them, Jesus would intercede for us and pray for those who crucified him. And Jesus today lives to make intercession for those who believe. That's how good our God is. Isn't this a transforming type of love? God is good. Jesus is aware of and able to handle all the schemes of Satan, even though the best of men remain clueless. And second, the unity, glory, and love of God, it transforms the people of God. The unity, glory, and love of God Transforms the people of God. And what happens when the people of God are transformed by the love and glory and unity of God? It spoils the schemes of Satan. It foils the schemes of Satan. Verses 31 and 32, let's read this again. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Believer, we love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. Let's get our heads into the room again. Get our minds into the room. The betrayal scene has just taken place. Judas has just eaten the morsel and fled. The betrayal is gone. The key has been turned of betrayal. And Jesus does not sit in gloom. He's not sitting back and saying, oh great, it's boy, the year 33 just won't pass. (laughs) He's not doing that. Or 30, whatever it was. He's not saying, oh, this year just won't pass. 2020 just won't get over with. What does he do? He sets his mind on the glory of God above, not the gloom of this world. You and I have a choice. Every single day, we either allow our minds to be captivated by the gloom of this world, or we can set our minds on the thing above. Look what Jesus says. When he had gone out, right on the fresh of the heels, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him, and, and Jesus knows the glory that will come to him. That will glorify the Father and the Father will glorify Him must entail the road of suffering and betrayal. His glory will come in His passion experience, the suffering, and His crucifixion, and His burial, and His resurrection, and His ascension. God will be glorified. In a world that is gloomy, believer, we must make a choice. We will either look like the world and be swallowed up in gloom and division or we will set our minds on the things above because we've been marked by the transformative love of God. It's not just the saying, Jesus loves you. But the love of God is transformative in our lives. In every situation, every decision, we must make a decision. Will I be marked by the gloom of this world or will I remember that I'm marked by the love of God? in my life. So what does Jesus call his disciples? He calls them little children. Little children. I want you to imagine. You can look around for a moment. Let's imagine that you walked up after service to one of our older members. I'm not going to say any names. Imagine you walked up to one of our older members and you said, Hello, little child. How strange would that be? Matter of fact, it would probably be insulting. So students, fresh off camp, do not do that. When you see your parent today, do not do that. Hello, little child. But how does Jesus use the term? This is a term that has marked the relationships. Just as the student is intimately known and dependent upon their teacher the apprentice upon the one that they follow. Just as the servant is intimately dependent upon the master, so too the little child is intimately dependent upon the parent. The picture as believers is that we are to be like hungry little birds. Intimately dependent upon the working of God. This marks our lives. It's used all over the Scriptures actually. In 1 John... little letter, it's used seven times he refers to them. That includes elders and pastors and the rest of the membership that makes up the bodies. He calls them all little children. Little children. What a reminder to us. Little children. What a joy, that identification. What if we put that on our business cards? I'm not saying to do that, but I'm a little child of God. How that would shape our understanding and our decision-making process. Because little children are not autonomous to do what they want to do. They're dependent upon their good and faithful parent. That's to mark our lives. That's the gift of God. This is good news. So what does Jesus do that is new here? What's new? This is difficult. Look at verse 34. This is confusing at first because He says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Well, that's not new. That's all through the Scriptures. God has told His people, His beloved, to love others. That's all over the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19.18, God said to Israel, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what's new? What's the new commandment? Or well, we can read over it very quickly and miss it. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Believers are, as we sang a few moments ago, we are marked by the blood of Christ. We have entered into the new covenant by Jesus' blood. How has Jesus loved you, believer? Believer? And as He spoke to the disciples who now have clean feet because He washed them, they've been marked by the service, sacrificial, shepherding love of God as He washed their feet. And He's going to go to the road to the cross by Himself that their whole souls may be washed clean. That's how we're to love. That's the new commandment. We're marked by the demonstration of the love of God in Jesus Christ, the sent Son of God. That's good news in a gloomy world. The transformative love of God. As I have loved you. This is all through the Scriptures. Listen to this. Romans 5. 5-8. through 8, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die but God showed his love for us in this out while we were yet sinners what did he do what did he do church Christ died for us that's the transformative love of God that's the compelling love of God and just because we're to love one another, we're to love even the family of God and our neighbors outside the family of God, it doesn't mean it's easy. He says this is going to be transformative to you, beloved, by disciples, by how you love one another. As the Father and Son are united and the Spirit are united, so too the body is to be united in the sacrificial serving and love of one another. And just because it's family, it doesn't mean there's too much easy about loving each other, does it? Now, my family's awesome. That's easy for me to do. Of course, the love of God is hard to demonstrate. Of course it is. That's what makes it compelling. In a world of darkness, even the people that are closest to us can be hard to love. As a matter of fact, they can be harder to love because you know them better. There's a reason TV stars and and social media stars are easy to love, because you have no real relationship, right? Right? Musicians are easy to love that you see and you listen to because you don't really know them. You just hear what they produced. It's a one sided relationship. But family and people that you know intimately, the worst and weirdest of their flaws, can be hard to love. There's nothing compelling about slothfulness or slander or gossip. That's easy. But the compelling love of God is contrastive. The compelling love of God can be hard. But it paints a profile of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says to the congregation in Corinth, love is patient and kind. Tell me if this sounds like Jesus to you. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And we could go and read the fruit of the Spirit text, and this would paint a beautiful picture of who? Jesus. Jesus. Love is compelling not because it's easy, or not because we always want to, but because it's, How we've been marked as the beloved of God. That is transformative. And so here's a very practical challenge for you. Would you take this challenge with me? This week, before you ever turn on the news, every time you turn on the television, and before you get on social media, would you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 through 7? Just read it. And when you turn that TV off, when you log off social media, When you get off the computer, would you read it again? Let this passage bookmark our time in the world with our minds this week. And may the Spirit show us the true contrast that is to be light and darkness. Let the Lord teach us what that means. So we love because He first loved us, and we follow because He first chose us. We follow because He first chose us. Back in verse 18, he mentions that he chose his disciples That's the immediate, but there's broader application as we'll see in coming chapters in the Lord's Prayer. But Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And he gives a similar answer to him. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. It's just like what we read last week. What is discipleship? What is discipleship? What is followership? We follow because He first chose us. And what each of us, each of us, regardless of our age, regardless of our gender, we will struggle with mixing up that statement. We will struggle with flipping it upside down. We will spend our whole lives trying to get that statement in the right order. Just as we love because He first loved us, we follow because He first chose us. And we will fight the fleshly, selfish pride desire that will flip it on its head and says, because we first chose Him, He will follow us. Isn't that true? Our prayer life becomes totally reactive. We, we blaze a trail of mistakes and then we say, Oh Lord, you've got to be behind me. Surely you're behind me. Oops, I messed this one up. You got it, though. I chose you. You follow after me, Lord. And discipleship is the joyful laying down of our lives to remember He loves us. He chose us. We abide in Him. We follow Him. This little children language is all over the place that we're going to remember when we come to chapter 15 of abiding. Abiding and following English preacher Thomas Goodwin in his sweet work, The Heart of Christ. It's a small, great little book. And in the book, The Heart of Christ, he summarizes this chapter that we're now concluding, chapter 13. He summarizes it in a way that is unbelievably striking, this Puritan preacher of the 1600s. Listen to how he summarizes this. It gives us a beautiful, loving picture of our Savior. Listen to this. Jesus knew that He should depart unto the Father. And now that then, He should shortly be installed to that glory which was due unto Him. So it follows that Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into His hands, that is, that all power in heaven and earth was His so soon as he should set foot in heaven, then, in the midst of these thoughts, John tells us, Jesus went and washed his disciples' feet after he had first considered whither he was to go and there what he was to be. In John chapter 13, Jesus knows that glory is fixed in him, that all things will be placed under his feet after the suffering. And when that thought comes into mind, the Scriptures make clear it's at that moment that Jesus models not lording it over someone, but He models washing His disciples' feet and initiating His betrayer, Satan, to enter into Judas, who has set His heart on betraying Jesus to propel the plot towards His suffering. And it's in these words, the ends of chapter 13, that Jesus, as the good teacher, as the great loving parent, says to His little children, you love each other as I have loved you. That's how they'll know you're mine. Can you get a more applicable word in 2020 than this text? You cannot. Love not because it's easy. Show grace and mercy not because it's easy. Because you are marked by the love of God and your Savior Jesus Christ. And this is the purpose by which we pour out our lives for others. Now, a final thought before we go into our next steps. Peter in his own might. Peter in his own might tells Jesus what? Jesus, where you're going, I'll go too. I'll be with you forever. Judas just betrayed Jesus and it troubled his spirit. Peter is trying to comfort Jesus and says, hey Jesus, don't worry, I'm always going to be by your side. And Jesus, who has all knowledge, tells Peter, what? Actually, Peter, uh, you're going to deny me three times here in the next few hours. Peter, in his own might, tries to encourage Jesus. And in trying to encourage Jesus, he reminds Jesus that even Peter is going to betray him three more times. Jesus walks the road of suffering with people physically around him, but he is alone. Peter tries his best in his own strength, and all he does is bring to mind to Jesus even a greater betrayal than we would have read if Peter would have just stayed there and grieved with him. And listened. even Job's friends come and sit with him and grieve with him for a while. But Peter, in his own might, tries to make all things right, and he ends up only compounding the hurt. Believer, can you relate to this? Can you relate to trying to make things better and then you find out you've only compounded the mess up? So what do we do, believer? We rest in the work of Jesus. And we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. if you don't know Jesus Christ as your King, place your faith and trust in Him. Place your faith and trust in Jesus alone. He will save you and forgive you and adopt you into His rest. And believer, it's in resting in Jesus and reminding ourselves of the gospel that we show good works that He's prepared for us to do before the foundation of the world of loving others and being uncompromising in the truth of God's Word. That is good news. He first. He first. So let's look to our next steps. Look to our next steps as we consider the one who first loved us. Three questions to hopefully better apply this text Number one, when did you come to really grasp God's gracious and merciful love for you? When did you come to really grasp God's grace upon your life that while you were yet a sinner, Christ would die for you? Not while you were lovely. When did you begin to grasp the grace of God and love of God for you? I was an 8th grade boy laying on my bed reading a teen study Bible in the book of Romans. And the grace of God really just like a weight, I begin to realize by God's grace there was nothing praiseworthy in me. That the undeserved, gracious love of God really saved me. I was already a believer. But the grace of God hit me like a wave to realize, oh, a whole other depth of understanding of the love and kindness of our King. When did you begin to understand that? Second, which believer and unbeliever do you know Jesus wants you to show gracious and merciful love toward this week? A believer and an unbeliever. Who does the Spirit want you to show love to this week? And here's the deal. When in doubt, go ahead and do something, right? It's the one time I'll tell you to be like Nike. When in doubt, just do it. Just show an act of love and kindness and grace to somebody. A believer and unbeliever in your life. Perhaps a betrayer in your life. Third, over lunch today, there's a discussion for this this particular discussion question. I'd ask, would you have this conversation? Because of what Jesus has done, every believer will one day be with Him. This is truth. We sing to Him now and we'll be with Him forever. So which of those two strike you most? Does it comfort you? Because you're kind of a wounded soldier this morning? Or a servant with a limp who just looks forward to resting in Him? him to make all things right is it more comforting or is it convicting is it convicting because your thoughts are saying I, I have so much more I want to do for the Lord before he calls me home is it more comforting or is it convicting or is it both is it both and how so have that conversation today we sing a song now that is wonderfully chosen come behold the wondrous mystery come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death the God of life but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. Let's say those words together. Praise the Lord, he is alive. Church family, would you stand with me as we sing his praises in response to the word of God.